It's a personal joy for me to welcome Edwin this morning. Edwin and I have known each other for quite a number of years. I think I'm right in saying that you began in Letterkenny? Yep. Come and join me for a minute. Uh, he began Letterkenny, and if I've got this right, I'm going from memory, Letterkenny to Mount Pottinger? That's right. And Mount Pottinger was very significant because he's the only guy who filled Pastor McNabb's shoes, according to my mother, my late mother. Uh, no matter who came after, Pastor McNabb didn't, didn't do the job until Edwin arrived. And I tell you, if you won my mother's heart, you were good. That was good. You must have been good. Good. Uh, from there you went to Coleraine, Coleraine. and pastored the church in Coleraine. And today? Assistant principal in the Baptist College. Wow, big difference. Yeah. Working with Nigel Young? Absolutely. He's not, he's not here to hear me. Significant, isn't it? <laughs> Edwin, you're very welcome. Thank you. God bless you. Well, I want to say it is a, a very real joy to be with you here in Windsor uh, over the course of this month. Uh, sometimes when you get an invitation to go to preach somewhere, at the time you take the booking, you think, that sounds like an excellent idea. I'd love to go there. And then uh, when the morning dawns, when you're due to get into the car to go, you think, I really wish I was staying at home. But I have to say, that's not the case with coming here to Windsor today. I've really been looking forward to this month. Uh, and I say that because I, I don't get an opportunity to do that very often, to come and speak consecutively now. And uh, if I have any sense of bereavement in relation to the pastoral ministry, I think that's probably my, uh, my chief sense of loss, uh, is just preaching systematically. So I'm looking forward uh, to sharing a theme with you over the course of the month of July. I'm going to be doing that in the morning and also in the evening. Not the same theme, two different themes. And uh, I've really been looking forward to coming. Uh, I don't know whether you have or not. Hopefully by the end of the month you'll say, well, it wasn't such a bad idea after all. Now, we're going to read together this morning in Genesis chapter 1, please. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read from verse 26. And on these four Sunday mornings, we're going to take a related theme from each of the first uh, four chapters of the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, reading from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I wonder if you remember the terrible events of Beslan in 2004. Uh, as I say that, it seems almost inconceivable that an atrocity of such magnitude could have slipped our memories. Uh, and yet, during the week, I had to really remind myself of the details of that. It was a hostage drama in the name of Chechen freedom. Hundreds 
of children, I can't remember the exact figure, but hundreds of children and adults were massacred. The natural reaction of the world was mixed, really, but mainly something like this, horror, revulsion, sorrow, and anger. And the kind of language that was used to describe the terrorists gave voice to these emotions. They were inhuman. They were animals. They were monsters. That's what people said. But as I reflect on the television coverage of the Beslan incident, one of the things that remains a lasting memory for me is the capture of one of the terrorists. I can remember, I can still see his face gripped firmly by two soldiers on either side. The man appeared cowed, frightened, and really very ordinary. He was just like anybody else in a uniform. And that event and the capture of that particular individual caused me at the time, I remember, to ask a question. What does it really mean to be human? What does it mean to be a human being? G.K. Chesterton once looked at that issue. Chesterton said this in describing man. He seemed like a walking blasphemy, a blend of the angel and the ape. Well, that certainly applied to the terrorists in Beslan and to those who continue to perpetrate atrocities around the globe today. But as you think about that, you have to be honest and hold up your hands and say, hold on a second, it doesn't just apply to those who were involved in that awful terrorist atrocity, but actually, to be honest, it applies to me as well. And if I can quote Chesterton again, he once was asked, what's wrong with the world? And in his usual pithy way, he answered like this. He said, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. You see, he recognized, and he was right, that it would not do to simply push away responsibility for the evils of the world onto other people. He saw that he himself had a part to play. And so my question by way of introduction this morning is this. How do we make sense of the human paradox in our nature? The good and the evil, the noble and the base. How can it be that there is so much to marvel at in our humanity and yet also so much that is entirely despicable? After all, we can display love and affection. We can display loyalty even to the extent of self-sacrifice and at the same time be guilty of the most dreadful iniquity. Dignity and depravity, that's the human paradox. And so what I thought we should do over the next four Sunday mornings is to consider some of the basic ethics of Genesis chapters 1 to 4. Ethics is a word that really describes how we behave as human beings, how we think and how those thought processes are translated into behavior. And where better to begin to look at a theme like that than the book of Genesis? Genesis sets the stage for everything else that follows. And so in the light of our question, who are we as human beings? What does it mean to be a human? Genesis gives us the proper perspective. And it does that not just by telling us how the world began, but by telling us in some detail who began it. What his plan is, what his purpose is, 
and what our part is involved in that as his people. And so it's right and good to appreciate immediately as we begin this morning that there is a reason for living. And the reason for living is that God has created us and he has made us in his image, as the screen says, and there is something very special about being a human being. Now, as we begin today, there are one or two things that I want to say very briefly about this book of Genesis and its place in the unfolding revelation of God. Genesis, uh, perhaps you know this, means beginning. And it's very well named because it gives a true account of creation by the only one who was there at the time, and that is the creator himself. It records the beginning of man. It records the beginnings of the nation of Israel. It covers an immensely long period of time. It's estimated probably more than the rest of the Bible put together in terms of the time scale. It begins in the distant past of creation, an event that we cannot absolutely date. And it moves through millennia uh, until we reach Abraham at the end of chapter 11, and then the storyline slows. And it focuses in detail on four generations of the family of promise as they make a journey from Mesopotamia through to the land of promise that God had given. Now, if we ask the question this morning, what is Genesis? Uh, There are two main views in the history of interpretation. There is a view that suggests that Genesis is simply a collection of myths. In other words, these are stories that have been copied from Mesopotamian pagan myth stories. And what they've done to them really is they've doctored them a little bit and they've made them more palatable for a Hebrew audience. Now I'm not going to get into any detail on this today but simply to say that there are none of the literary characteristics of ancient mythology in the book of Genesis. And so I want to put a very large question mark uh, over that particular theory. The one that I want to use as our premise today, as our foundation, is that Genesis is a record of history. As you read this book, you have to admit immediately that Genesis uses poetic imagery and symbols, for example, in chapter 3, and we'll come to that. But this does not mean that we should read the book of Genesis as poetry. Everything about this book leads to the conclusion that it is prose, It is writing certain things that actually took place. Uh, One of the things that we very often say to the students in the Irish Baptist College, and I think we're right to say it, is that the best commentary you have on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Uh, And so if you can find some kind of comment or reflection in the New Testament on the book of Genesis, then you can be sure that the interpretation of the New Testament writer is right on the mark. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.12, As by one man sin entered into the world. And what he's doing there is authenticating the historicity of Adam. He's saying Adam was a real person. And then when you read on a little bit in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he does exactly the same in relation to Eve. He says Eve was a real historical person. So I want to conclude, without going into detail today, that Genesis is a record of history. Now, we grant that it is interpretative history, historical theology, facts narrated in the framework of a divine plan. 
I read a writer recently who said history is God's story. And that's absolutely right. But what about the themes of Genesis? And this is a very quick potted survey of this book. What about the themes? Well, the twin themes of blessing and cursing are woven throughout the fabric of Genesis. And from this book, you find these themes repeated again and again right throughout the scripture. Obedience brings enrichment and blessing. Disobedience brings judgment and punishment. One of the most impressive things about the book of Genesis is the way that it points forward. It, it has a, a constant thrust forward to a consummation that is foretold and yet in large detail unforeseen. Many of the themes of this book reappear again right at the end of Scripture. It's as if God is topping and tailing uh, his unfolding revelation for us. Uh, and so you discover themes like the fall of man and the judgment of the flood and so on, repeated again later in Scripture. And this lovely symmetry where some of the, the figures and scenes that you find in Genesis uh, reappear in the book of Revelation, where the ancient serpent meets his downfall and the redeemed walk again in paradise by the river and the tree of life. What that tells us very simply is this. The Bible is not a series of random documents thrown together. It is rather the revelation of God to us unfolding his plan and his purpose and our part within that. Now that's a very broad, and I'm sure you'll probably say a, a, not a very helpful summary of the whole of the book of Genesis. But it gives us some kind of a backdrop for understanding what we want to deal with this morning, which is the nature of man, what it means to be a human being. Now, our passage, as I've said, is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to the end. And on the basis of that passage, I want to highlight very simply three things about man made in God's image. The first thing is this. I want us to consider, as we begin, the unique decision God made. In Genesis 1.26, the words, let us make man, have no parallel in ancient literature or in the world of experience. Here is an insight into the self-consciousness of God and the relationships which are very mysterious that exist between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Human beings, you and I, are the product of a unique decision in the mind of the triune God in eternity. Now, that seems a very simple thing to say in one way, and yet if you begin to let it fill your mind and sink into your heart, it's a mind-boggling truth that you and I are the product of a decision that God made way back in eternity. Our presence in the world is not the result of a chance force or a mutation in the animal kingdom. We are here because God decided to create us. And Genesis chapter 1 is the record. Now, although he appears last in the ascending scale, made on the sixth day, man is really first in the divine intention. And there is a distinct impression given here in Genesis that when God came to the creation of man, he embarked on something different and distinctive. At the end of each stage in the world's creation, God paused and pronounced what he had made good 
Now, we know this from the story. He does this in verse 4, in verse 10, in verse 18, in verse 21, and in verse 25. He made certain things, physical features, and pronounced them good. And then he set about creating a being who was worthy of all that he had made. He brought man into existence to have lordship over the world. One of my favorite writers is actually, uh, well, long since dead, but he's an old student of the Irish Baptist College in its Dublin days, H.D. MacDonald. He was the vice principal of London Bible College for many years, and he's written some very helpful commentaries and a, a lovely little study of the nature of man. And MacDonald makes the point that the idea of the creation of man as something special is brought about by the use of the simple word then at the beginning of verse 26. All the previous acts of God are presented in terms of a a continuing series linked by the use of the word and. And then in verse 26, you come to this word, and then God did something. Then the order of creation was finished. The earth was ready and perfect. God stated his intention of creating man and made him. So God took a unique decision. God said, let us make man. Now, maybe at some point you've noted the use of that word, us, in the verse. Let us make man. It's a plural word. And uh, most evangelical commentators take the view that this is a pointer, at least, to the doctrine of the Trinity in embryo form. It's a a doctrine, of course, that is not spelled out in any great detail in the Old Testament, but very clearly revealed in the New Testament. God the Father's partners in creation were the Son and the Spirit. Uh, We've been singing about that this morning. Uh, I'm sure you noticed. Father, Spirit, Son. I can't remember the order of it in the song. Sometimes songwriters, to get the song sounding right, change the order a little bit. But Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit was involved in creation. Chapter 1, verse 2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And if you want a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ's involvement in creation, well, Paul's letter to the Colossians and the beginning of Hebrews. Now, the question arises, of course, why? God took a unique decision, but why did he take it? Why did God decide to make us? At one level, we need to appreciate that God didn't need to do that. God is completely, absolutely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything. He is complete in himself. So the answer is very simple. God did this for his glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 is a verse that I come back to time and again. And there God speaks of the sons and daughters from the ends of the earth as those whom I created for my glory. Now, that's a vitally important thing because if we simply took the fact that God doesn't need anybody or anything, we might get the mistaken idea that we're insignificant. We don't matter. And... uh, If you've been involved in pastoral work for any length of time at all, you'll meet people like that who think they don't don't matter. They're insignificant, very low sense of self-esteem. And this doctrine of creation is a doctrine that counteracts that. It tells us that in the eyes of God, all of us individually are highly significant to him because he has made us 
for his glory. And it's not wrong for God to make something for his glory because he is the creator. And uh, this theme of the, the glory of God in creation is something that is sung in heaven. We sing about it on earth. We've been doing a little, a little bit this morning. And you can be sure that it's sung in heaven and will be at the end of the age. Because in Revelation 4 verse 11, the song of the redeemed is this. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And I believe that ought to be the note of praise on our lips today. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Our natural human instinct is to claim glory for ourselves, every one of us. We do that in all kinds of spheres. We do it in employment. We do it in entertainment, certainly. We do it in sport. Will it be Federer or Nadal this afternoon? Well, what glory is attributed to the winner of the Wimbledon Championship? But here is a reminder this morning that there is one alone who is worthy of all our praise and worship. He is God the Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made a unique decision. Let us make man in our own image. But then there's a second thing that I want us to notice in these verses, and that is the unique privilege we enjoy. Our passage claims that the human race is godlike, And that's true of no other part of creation. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, the two phrases are not meant to be understood as indicating two separate things. Uh, A lot of debate in church history about that. Some of the early church fathers reckoned that image meant the physical side and likeness meant the mental or spiritual side. And they got themselves into all kinds of tangles about this. But it's generally agreed that these words, image and likeness, refer to essentially the same thing, something that is similar, but not exactly identical to the thing it represents. The phrase simply means that man is like God and is intended to represent him. Male and female together, made in God's image. And you'll notice that in verse 27, the phrase, he created him, he created them. Now, a very good parallel to help us understand this uh, is actually to consider, I've given you the verse there, chapter 5, verse 2, and also verse 3. This relationship between God and man is mirrored in the relationship between Adam and his son Seth, who is described as being in his own likeness, in his own image. Seth was not identical to Adam, but was like him in many ways, as a son is like his father. Uh, I'm looking around to see if I can see any fathers and sons here this morning, and uh, yeah, okay, yes, I can see a likeness there, and uh, yeah, I can see another one down here, and he's, well, he's a mix between mum and dad, certainly, very clearly, and we look like our parents. As I get older, uh, people say to me, I get more like my late father every day. Uh, Sometimes I think that's a good thing, and other times I'm not so sure. My sons are beginning to look a little bit like me, and uh, sometimes to behave a little bit like me in terms of their mannerism, and I'm not sure that's a good thing at all. But here is this man Seth, and he is like his father Adam. 
What was it that made him like him? Was it his curly hair or his brown eyes or the way he walked or some behavioral characteristic? Well, it probably is a mistake to try to specify the areas in which they were alike. It's enough to say that in every way in which Seth was like Adam, that was a part of his likeness to Adam and so a part of his being in Adam's image. In the same way, every way in which we are like God is part of being in the image and likeness of God. It means that to be human is to be different. Chapter 2 verse 7 reminds us we are dust and to dust we shall return. Very often those words are used at a graveside and, uh, and yet we are unique within creation. So we should never be disturbed by the theories, sometimes humanistic, of the zoologist, the psychologist, and the anthropologist. We are more than merely dust. We hope and we dream and we aspire. We have a, a tremendous capacity for thought and reason. Contrary to Dr. Doolittle, no animal can do what we can do. We have godlike qualities. Now, I know you're dying for me to tell you what they are, and I want to suggest three to you. First of all, personality. To possess that, you need to have knowledge, feelings, and a will. This is part of what it means to be different to animals. It distinguishes us from the rest of creation. And our personality is developed principally in the context of relationships. We are social beings. And so while we have come here to church today to worship God, and that's our primary focus, and we've prayed that God will help us to do that, there is a social side to this. I understand we're having a cup of tea afterwards. That's terrific. Uh, so important to develop contact in community with one another. Uh, and God has made us as social beings. He has set us in families and in communities and in the New Testament, in the church. You'll remember that the one thing that was not good about creation was that the man was alone. Uh, and so God created woman. And together, man and woman, in relationship, reflect the glory of God in their personality. So the privilege we enjoy is to do with personality. It's secondly to do with morality. This includes the two further elements of freedom and responsibility. Man as a human being is capable of moral judgments. He makes choices. He is subject to moral evaluation. In scripture it is revealed that he has an obligation to obey God and will be held accountable for what he does with the commands of God. Uh, we think of uh, a verse like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 which points forward to a day of judgment when Paul says we will receive in the body what we've done, whether good or bad. So God has made us responsible beings. I tell you this, that directly contradicts the evasion of responsibility that is endemic in our society today. Isn't that the case? Everybody says it's nothing to do with me. It wasn't my fault. Well, well we learned to do that. Nobody teaches us, it's just in us. From our earliest days, we've said, it wasn't me, it was somebody else. We do it at school, we do it at home, and there are many people who are still doing it. And this evasion of responsibility is something that is contradicted by the doctrine of creation. The third thing is spirituality. 
We exist for communion with God who is spirit. John 4.24 says, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what particularly, more than anything else, distinguishes us from the rest of the created order. It is on the level of the spirit that we are aware of God and commune with him. Now that explains the deep sense of longing for faith, for religion, for God, that exists in so many human beings. We are restless without God. Augustine said on one occasion, we have a God-shaped vacuum, I paraphrase him. We have a God-shaped vacuum that only the true God, the creator, can fill. And so if there's anybody in our service this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I say this to you. You have a capacity for God that exists in your life like a vacuum that needs to be filled. And without God filling that vacuum, life is essentially, ultimately unfulfilled and even empty. So we have a unique privilege This is what the Bible teaches. We have a unique privilege to enjoy. God has made us in his image, in his likeness. We have personality, morality, spirituality. What a contrast to the rest of the created order. I've got favorite animals. I'm sure you have. Some of the, the younger folk here, you're immediately thinking of the elephant. No? You're thinking of the polar bear, endangered species. You're thinking of the lion or the eagle or some of these wonderful animals. But in God's estimation, man has a unique dignity that far outweighs them all. When God wanted to make something like himself, he made us. We have a unique privilege. Now, I want to say that that is a truth that should revolutionize our thinking And our behavior. In other words, it should make an impact on our ethics. For example, in questions of race, big issue today, didn't used to be an issue here in Northern Ireland, but it's increasingly an issue now. In issues of race, it means we must treat people with absolute equality. In questions of sexual ethics, it means that we cannot be other than pro life. And where this principle is set aside, human beings are devalued. So it's a principle that is true in a number of contexts. It's true, for example, in the maternity hospital, where the unborn and the recently born are precious. It's true in the school, where equal opportunity and education must be freely given to everybody. It's true in the workplace, where nobody should be discriminated against because of race or gender. It's true in the nursing home, where the elderly and frail in body and mind are to be granted proper dignity and worth by those who care and by those who visit. And it's true in the church. How important it is to have an open door and a welcoming hand. This is something that must characterize the people of God, the people who say they are followers of Jesus Christ. We derive our ethics from where? Not just from the New Testament, but also from the Old Testament. Right away back in the beginning, from the book of Genesis, we have a unique privilege 
to enjoy. And so as we encounter people in all of these settings, in the church and the world, we recognize that they are God-like people, human beings made in his image, and they need to be treated as such. And then thirdly, and rather more briefly, the unique function we exercise. This is the third thing that we learn from Genesis chapter 1, that man is made, created, and instructed to rule over the world of creation. In other words, designed to exercise a godlike stewardship over nature. In verse 26, when God made his unique decision, he said, and let them rule. And in verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Significant that when the animals were brought to Adam to name, that was a Hebrew way of saying that he had authority over them. It wasn't just that he thought of fancy names for them, but it indicated his authority and stewardship of them. So God has made us for a purpose. He has made us with the intention that we should control our environment by harnessing and managing the forces of nature. And in this way, as we do it responsibly, our lives become an image of God's lordship over everything. You see, our creator is glorified when we are responsible in our stewardship of creation. It doesn't mean that we should be ostriches with our heads in the sand with relation to technological advancement. Technological advancement can very much be part of our human dominion and may please the God who gave us our stewardship, provided it is responsible and ethical. Now, the implications of that, it seems to me, are very obvious. Christians should be at the forefront of ecological concerns for the welfare and preservation of our world. We should be in the vanguard of those who protest against the exploitation of natural resources, against the wholesale slaughter of wildlife for profit. We should take seriously our role as stewards of all that God has created. It is God who made the earth, not us. He has entrusted it to our care. He is the owner, and we, if you like, are simply the stewards who manage it on his behalf. John Stott said on one occasion, this is both a delegated and a cooperative dominion. That was a superb way to put it. God has delegated us a job, and we cooperate with him in the performance of the task. You see, any authority that we have in this connection comes from him. And in exercising it, we are in cooperation with the Almighty in the processes of nature that he has set in motion. We rule over creation, yes, but we remember that it is God who sends the rain. Too much of it we think in July, but it is God who sends the rain. It is God who makes the sun to shine. It is God who makes things grow. Now, my fear is this. What when the landowner returns? Because he is. He will. When he returns and asks what kind of job we've been doing with what he has entrusted to us. I tell you this at present, all we can do is hang our heads in shame at the mess of our world. And so I've constantly got to remind myself of this. I need to recycle. I I, I need to do all of the things 
that will advantage the environment in which I live. I'm not saying I I wear a green hat all the time. I I probably don't go to extremists in it. But I, I need to remind myself of the doctrine of creation. And Christians should always bear in mind the book of Genesis and the unique function that we exercise on behalf of the Lord. It's part of our nature. That's been our theme this morning. What does it mean to be a human being? I hope that in some measure we've answered that question. We are created in the image of God, the unique decision that God made. Secondly, we have a unique privilege to enjoy. We are godlike and distinct from everything else that God made. And finally, we have a unique function to exercise. The function of responsible rule over all that God has made. It's my conviction that when we grasp that, and when we do it, God will be pleased. And above all, God will be glorified. And so in our worship today, here in Windsor Baptist Church, in this hour and 15 minutes or so that we've spent together, our prayer has been that God will be pleased with what we have offered to him. But it doesn't finish here, you see. It continues the rest of the day and tomorrow and the next day and the next as we seek to bring glory to the one who has made us in his image. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. We pray that some of the principles that we've been seeking to unravel today may make an impact in our hearts and minds. Forgive us for when we have failed not only to understand what you have revealed to us, but when we have understood, feel to put it into practice. Lord, forgive us, we pray, for thinking that we're of no value, of no worth. Forgive us sometimes for overestimating our value. Help us to get a proper biblical balance. Forgive us for when we have not sufficiently exercised proper dominion and stewardship over all that you have made. And help us, we pray, to live ethically in the days that lie ahead, for Christ's sake. Amen.